The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, Great Escapes 2. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. I trust that you enjoyed the last episode, Great Escapes 1, the story of Jeff Hubbard's venom ejection in Malaya in 1957. In this episode, we look at another ejection, this time from a strike master, and it has to be one of the narrowest margins for ejection ever, I'm sure. My guest this episode is Pete Lindsay. I'd like to welcome Peter Lindsay to the show. Hi, Pete. Hi, Dave. How are you? Good, good. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a background um, where you were from, where you grew up, and uh, how you got into the Air Force, please, just briefly? Uh, yep, I um, I joined the Air Force in 83, class 583, and uh, prior to that, I spent most of my life um, growing up in Levin, um, oh, right. which is obviously about, uh, yeah, about uh, 40 minutes south of Ohakia. So uh, um, I um, actually got into the Air Force by more by accident and good luck, to be honest. I um, went to the United States as an exchange student for my last year of school. And before I left, my mum wouldn't let me go unless I had uh, committed to coming back and to what career I decided to do. So I was uh, in the seventh form common room in those days and uh, asking my buddies for some help on trying to keep my mum happy. And some guy showed me an advert of a guy and a, a fighter pilot and a Skyhawk. And um, I thought that'll do. So I signed up for that before I left. And uh, as soon as I got back from my year in the States, I went and did the um, interviews. The next thing I know, I was, um, I was on the course in uh, 80, 83. So that's how I kind of got into it. I wasn't really a big aviation fan in my earlier days and um, didn't really know what I was getting into, to be honest, but uh, turned out to be a, a blessing. Oh, that's fantastic. That's, that's a really interesting way into the Air Force. That's brilliant. Yeah, I wasn't one of those boys that grew up and looking out the sky as I was growing up wanting to be a pilot. But uh, I remember when I got asked, uh, when I got um, asked at my Air Force interview, uh, the guy said, uh, you speak um, reasonably quickly. Does that mean you think quickly? I said, oh, I suppose you could go with that. He said, OK, if I was doing 75 miles in 25 minutes, how fast am I going? So I said, three, three miles a minute. <laughs> he said, I think that's a bit slow for an aircraft. So I thought, then I thought, I think he's trying to trick me, so I'll stick with it. I said, no, no, it's definitely three. So he said, have you ever heard the word stall? I said, no. <laughs> so I left, I left there thinking, I don't think I've got any chance of getting in. But, uh, but uh, yeah. 
Wow. Yeah, by the grace of God. So uh, you went through the the um, flying training. You would have, I guess, been on the uh, CD4 air trainer and then into the Stripe Master. Um, yeah, I was CD4 down in Wigan and then Stripe Master up in Ahakia. Yeah. Uh, so how far along in your career were you when um, your ejection incident happened? Had you been in for a I, I was. I was near the end. I was near the end of my um, uh, jet fighter uh, conversion course, but I had also just um, applied and been accepted for a re-roll to um, Orion's, P3 Orion's. I decided okay. that uh, I didn't really want to pursue the strike career. There was a shortage. It was very hard to get out of a role in those days once you were sort of posted or committed to it. But there was a huge shortage in P3 Orion pilots, so I um, I had requested and been accepted to leave strike and and go to um, move up to Auckland and um, do a P3 Orion course. That never actually eventuated in the end because of uh, of the accident, but that's where I was going at the time. Okay, all oh, right. Um, and so at that stage, how many hours had you done on the Stripe Master? Do you know? Uh uh i think i've probably you do about 230 hours for your initial wings course and i've probably done another 100 hours so i was probably around about 150 hours on the strike master total at that time okay so you were fairly comfortable with it then obviously and uh, uh what did you think of the strike master oh i loved it i actually loved that aircraft i um uh i remember it had, I mean, you know, it could do 800 kilometres an hour or 450-odd knots, so it was, it was pretty uh, snazzy for those days. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was just the, the, the strike, uh, the jet trainer conversion was um, sort of the first time you had some freedom after your wings course to go out and, and really enjoy the, um, the, uh, the ability of the aircraft. And, you know, nowadays it, it would be nothing, but then it was, it was pretty good. It was still, it was old in those days, but it was, I think it was, 1963 aircraft or around there somewhere i can't remember the date when it was first released it was a yep. version of the it was called the old blunty because of that blunt nose at the front there and uh and it wasn't uh you sort of your, your um final jet fighter but as a trainer it was great yeah it had a good performance on it and um and uh, it was lovely to train on and to learn from and it was very solid when you did things like uh formation flying etc it was very very stable platform it was lovely yeah absolutely um, so, can you tell us what sort of led up to the fateful flight? Um, yeah, we were just doing a uh, low, high, low, high, I think, navigation exercise in a three ship formation. So, um, two of my other buddies on our um, uh, jet trainer conversion were, um, uh, we came together as formation black. And the idea was we we're going to fly um, medium, not really high, but medium level down to the South Island, then descend down to the top of the South Island, split into three individual navs with a set rendezvous time back at the top of the South Island, followed by just a um, medium level return in formation back to um, Ahakia. Yeah. And then um, black, we were in those days, I don't know, I haven't flown in New Zealand for a long time, but I, I know they don't exist anymore. But there used to be those low-level jet routes throughout the whole of the country. Yep. And uh, I think from memory it was a Wednesday, maybe. I can't, I can't remember that day. But I was on, at, at, as it turned out, I was on a low-level jet route that went right over Black One's family farm. So that was uh, the lead-up to the fatal accident, to be honest. <laughs> okay. 
so so we split um we split up and um black one when i got near to um the location of the of the uh accident i could see uh black one popped up above the horizon so i wasn't expecting him to be there um so I called him and uh, he said, yeah, he'd uh, got early on his Nevix. He was now over going to go and say hello to his, um, his family all down the Wai, um, the Waiau Valley. He had, they had quite a few farms down there that his family owned. So I said, I'll jump in behind you and uh, just show me the, the area. So I kind of jumped in behind him. But as he knew the area and I didn't, and I was uh, young and foolish those days, I was down at around 200 or feet or maybe less and he was up at sort of 800 feet so he was skipping through the valleys and I was down amongst the weeds yeah. and then um, and then he uh, popped over these um, uh, the main power lines to Kaikoura there were in fact because we took out the power to Kaikoura that morning um, and he did a run into his family to say hello and I as I popped up I went straight through them and in fact I saw them at the last minute and pulled to try and avoid, but they actually struck right below where my um, where my feet were located on the in the cockpit that sort of hit that bottom area of the aircraft. And unfortunately for me, the the um, the cables have been broken almost exactly a year earlier by a crop duster. And um, and so they had these big splices on the cables. Right. And um, where I hit Right beside the cables, the cable fed through it on the underwing tank of the of the of the Blunty, and unfortunately got caught on the um, uh, the connections to the underwing from the um, auxiliary tanks, and that basically, uh, you know, we're, I was low at that stage, probably a hundred feet doesn't matter now. It was 40 odd, 30 odd years ago, so. Yeah. Doesn't matter now, but he was around about 100 feet, I suppose. And then the aircraft uh, started the first stage of a spin because it was basically being dragged sideways across the sky. Wow. And uh, I tried I tried to um, recover and to pull up and, and uh, um, you know, very quickly it flashed through my mind that this was the first stage of a spin and that takes thousands of feet to recover. And there was no way I was getting out of this. So um, I uh, saw this. Uh, hill coming towards me and I um, reached down and just grabbed the handle with one you're supposed to grab two hands and brace back and be straight back and upright but I didn't I was bent over to my left hand side and just grabbed it with my right hand and just hauled it and uh, I remember thinking that it hadn't worked funny enough because you get this thing called temporal distortion well I got this thing called temporal distortion lots of people have had it in car accidents and stuff when time slows down oh yeah yeah not quite, and you and you think you're not you, you think you're one place but you actually had another so everything slowed down so I can remember holding the handle in my in my hand the ejection handle and looking at the front of the canopy and seeing the um, hill and um, I thought I'd hit it I thought I was I'd gone into the hill and uh, but I I'd obviously ejected by that stage and um, uh, the guy watching on the side of the road he's, there was a, a Russian guy doing um, surveying and he said he saw the, th the blunty hit the hill and explode and I popped out the top of the fireball so it was um yeah it was really close in fact 0.8 of a second they reckon and they did all the mass they came and said to me when you pulled the handle to when the aircraft exploded on the hill they worked it out to be 0.8 of a second so it was um she was tight all right and then That's incredible. Um, 
yeah, well, the thing that saved me, uh, there was many things that day. It was just one, you know, a bad luck day, but luck and things afterwards. You know, the first thing that saved me was that uh, I was flying one of only, I think, four aircraft that had been reconfigured with this uh, miniature detonating cord in the canopy. So the old strike, uh, the old ejection process, when you pull the ejection handle, there was a one second delay while the canopy blew off in total and then you ejected. But someone had done a paper on that and it worked out a way of fixing the problem with some latest uh, sort of technology. And that was to get this miniature detonating cord so that when you pulled the ejection handle, the canopy exploded and you went through the exploding glass and there's now no delay. Right. And I just happened to be in one of only four that have been that have been uh, changed at that stage. So that was the difference between life and death, to be honest, because it was 0.8 of a second, as I said. So I would have been still sitting in the seat while the process was going through its um, original um, ejection sequence. So uh, anyway, that was sort of first part of luck. And then, of course, it was a um, it was an old Martin Baker seat. So it was a 090 seat, which meant you had to be, uh, you know, level and doing 90 knots yeah. to eject for the ejection sequence to to um, to work correctly. And that's obviously just if they had a problem on the on the takeoff, it would work. So I was doing sort of 300 knots, but I was going down at a great rate of knots. So when I ejected, the sort of vectors cancelled each other out and I didn't go very far at all. I basically sort of stayed about 30 or 40 feet above the ground and I and as the hill, as the aircraft went into the side of the hill, my trajectory and arc took me over the hill at about 30 to 40 feet. And, uh, you know, I, I blacked out originally, initially, but when I came to, I was kind of tumbling through the sky like Superman, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I remember, I remember seeing the cliff of the house that we were going to go and say hello to, the cliff, and uh, thinking, man, I've made it out of this aircraft and I'm going to die like a fly on a windscreen against the sides of this cliff because I couldn't see anything working at all. And then, uh, then I started, like, this sort of orange flash came across the front of my chest and I you know, wonder what that was. And... Um, of course, it was the chute starting to, to um, uh, operate. And in the end, instead of uh, stopping me from falling vertically, it stopped me from going horizontally because I was still in that sort of motion. When it, when it finally opened, it was like a massive big break. Right. And it just stopped me momentarily. And I kind of basically had one swing in the chute down to the ground, hit the ground, rolled and stood up. Wow. And um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, she was close to her. I was really close. And then, and then to add to the drama of the day was while I was standing there thinking, holy heck, you know, man, what, what, what have I done? Yeah. Then the other seat, because it was side by side, since the other seat came and landed right beside me, it landed no more than about 15 metres away from me. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, because it had gone out on the, but it hadn't, it hadn't uh, gone through a seconds, but it just gone out like a, because when I pulled the handle, it took them both. And so, um, yeah. So that was an, enough for me. So I, I sprinted to the side of the, the cliff for some sort of um, uh, safety away from all the falling debris. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was, that was the sequence, how it worked. It was um, one of those lucky days, you know, where you're just there by the grace of God. You just managed to escape through a few little loopholes. But, um, but uh, yeah, now you can sort of uh, laugh about it now and I can tell my, my kids and maybe my grandkids one day fondly, but at the time it wasn't such a good story. No, no, not at all. So, um, in the actual ejection, were you injured at all from the from the rocket? 
Yeah, I, yeah, I did. I, I had a, I had a, uh, I had, I was, I was actually, um, I was an aerobics instructor in those days, and I was a pretty good squash player, so I, I was fairly fit and good core strength. So when I went out sideways, I got a compression in my T11, but just a, an eighth of an inch compression on my T11 on my spine to one side. So um, that was the injury I had, and they didn't have the the knowledge they have these days. So what, what should have happened was I should have been put in a brace and and basically lay in the bed without movement for about three weeks. Yeah. But we didn't have that knowledge in those days. So I was up and moving around pretty quickly and I had reoccurring back spasms for a good probably four years afterwards. Okay. Um, without warning, you know, but but as it was explained to me later on, the muscle had that memory spasm process so if I went to move in a certain way and that's the body was intelligent enough to think that that I was having the injury reoccurring it would just spasm to protect me okay and uh yeah it was throw you out so I had a couple of embarrassing places where it happened but but eventually I, I, I went to a doctor who said to me it's not too late to do the process so I, I had to go home and and I basically lay on the floor for uh, three weeks Wow. And um, and it seemed to fix it. I haven't had any problems ever since. I've been pretty good, luckily, since then. Wow, but, um, yeah, I was, was lucky. So but overall, no, not really. Just that one injury that um, wasn't sort of uh, long-term. So so in your training, uh, uh, doing the flying training in the uh, Stroke Master, do you think the ejection training that you'd been given was adequate enough for you to know exactly what was going to happen and and did it all work the way it should have yeah actually i think it was we, we used to do you know zoom trim boom that was the sort of um training process we have and often after takeoff they'd give you a, a, a um simulated engine failure and you you know, you'd go through the zoom uh, as in like climb and then trim as in trim the wheel back so it's still climbing and then boom as in eject yeah. um i remember thinking at the time you know what if this happens i like all this this idea but i'm going to try and save the aircraft and bring it back to the to the airfield and you know save the day i was 19 as we all thought we could we were um you know uh unscratchable yeah. and uh but i'll tell you what when it actually happened you thought no thanks for i'm out of this I'm, <laughs> i need to live and so yeah. the, uh, the the instinct to get out and survive is very overwhelming you know? so um uh, so that that took over luckily but uh, yeah I, I certainly i had no qualms at the time of knowing what option I had and the decision to, to take it was driven in my case by a, a clear and obvious um, choice between uh, life and death because there wasn't any way out. So it was either sitting there and, and go in or get out. Right, 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 right. It's, uh, it's amazing how quickly you can make a decision when you need to, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it all runs, you know, you, these things I've talked to you about, uh, they all went through my head, but they're all probably lagging behind time because it already happened, most of the stuff, by the time I uh, um, sort of uh, landed on the on the side of the grassy hill there. But, um, yeah, yeah you, you do, if your training is good, and the Air Force training was always good, so the training is good and your, your re reactions, um, you practiced it enough times that it wasn't, it wasn't difficult to... Um, to recall, it all just became uh, instant. Right, right. 
Um, I was uh, safety and surface in the Air Force, and when we did our training uh, about the ejection seat side of things, because obviously we packed the parachutes, um, your uh, story was part of the part of the syllabus. They told us about your ejection, and uh, one of the sort of legends was that as you were going out, you could see the nose of the aircraft crumpling into the hill. Is that correct? I can see the grass. I can still see the grass to this day. I remember seeing the grass. Uh, as I was heading, as I was about to impact the hill, so I, I remember seeing the grass. Yeah, wow. uh, didn't. Yeah, and it, and crystal clear. Uh, um, like you know, just thinking, oh man, after all that, didn't have, I thought it didn't work. Right? That microsecond ago, I've got the one set that didn't work. How unlucky am I? But I'd already gone by that stage. But yeah, but I do remember seeing the grass. I could see the grass as as clear as I was. You know, I was sort of only meters away from it right. when it all happened. Oof. Um, and what was the the aftermath of your ejection? Uh, obviously, your um, your buddy that you're flying with did he carry on, or did he circle around, or? Um... Yeah, well, he he uh, he came back around actually because so I was on the he, he he was talking he was telling me later on that he was uh, he was trying to explain the. Um, the location of the house and he said oh this looks like my, <laughs> looks like my dad's started a um a burn off on the hill <laughs> leading into it because <laughs> that was me <laughs> and then he realized i wasn't i wasn't talking to him because he thought i was further back and he was trying to explain the process and then he goes uh he said he came back around and uh and i and i knew he had no we were really low on fuel and i knew he had none so i tried to to um uh, wave out to him and I was okay he saw me he just did one pass and carried on right. and then um and then he uh he met up with with black two up at the top of the south island and and he was still in shock so when he got there black two said you know where's Pete and he said uh, he's not coming let's go <laughs> of course this black two's going what's that mean you know but he couldn't get anything out of him he was still in shock from the whole thing so oh, wow. um he didn't he, later on it was closer into a hockey that he realized what had gone on oh okay wow <clears throat> and then what uh i guess someone sent emergency services for you or um i i got to make a flash call actually that was the funny thing was i i we had to here's the here's the irony of the whole story we had to break into the house because his parents weren't home oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so this russian this russian um surveyor uh, helped me up the cliff and we uh, had to break into the house and then we uh they had a flash call in those days and I didn't that that I didn't believe was going to work but um sure enough I dialed zero operator answered I said I want to make a flash call to a Hakia and uh, I was connected instantaneously it was amazing it was wow. like wow yeah it was incredible and then um so I told them where I was and they dispatched a helicopter from Wigram and um and then of course as soon as I hung up the phone starts ringing yeah. and it's uh the media so I gave the phone to the Russian guy and he started speaking Russian to them and that uh, turned them off. So that <laughs> solved that problem. <laughs> and then, um, and then we, the other thing was we, we, we walked back down to the crash site and uh, we could hear two helicopters, two choppers coming in at the one time. We recognised the first one was the um, Iroquois and the one behind me didn't know what it was, but it actually turned out to be media. And um, Wow. The helicopter pulled up and the loadmaster came running over to me with a stretcher and he's yelling at me, get down, lay down, lay down. And I'm going, no, I'm all right, I'm fine. He says, lay down. 
So I thought, okay, I'm not quite sure what's going on here. So I lay down and he got down beside me and said, the media's coming. He said, they see you walking around like nothing. They're going to hang you, mate. So lie down, look like you're injured. At least get some sympathy from somewhere. So wow. he was trying to help me out, this guy. And he, and he stretched <laughs> me off on the stretch. But I was actually fine. And then, uh, but the, the, the backlash was it was, of course, that I managed to make a quick call to my dad to say, okay, I'm in a bit of trouble here, but whatever you hear, I'm okay, I'm alive. Yeah. But when the news media, when it came on the six o'clock news, it showed me coming off on a stretcher, which seemed freaked out my mother. So then we had to go try and sort that problem out because <laughs> she didn't believe me. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, so, yeah, but yeah, but it worked both ways. But yeah, it was a funny part of it. This this guy yelling at me later. I'm like, you can't talk to me like that. And then, uh, and then thinking, but he's saying, I'm trying to save your ass, mate. So lie down. It's like, okay. So I did. Yeah. I just can't believe that even way back then, the media were that quick onto the scene. That's incredible. Oh, it was incredible. They were right behind it. They were, they, 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 yeah, it was amazing. I, I guess, I think there was a, um, a uh, black one put out a mayday call on the radio to Christchurch Tower yeah, uh, as a coverall. And I guess that, and of course that was, so it might appear quick, but he would have made that while I was still at the crash site. And then we would have climbed the hill and broken into the house and then made the call. So what seemed quick to me was probably already underway because, because black one had made a made a call probably right. 10 or 15 minutes earlier. So right. it, it appeared quickly to me, but in if I think about it, it probably was just a regular time. But yeah, they were there quick though. They were onto it fast. As. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. And um, obviously, I guess later there was an inquiry, and you had to go through all that sort of process of. Um, yeah, I went to went to the old court martial, got the pointed sword, and all that sort of stuff. It was, uh, but by then it, it was it was a process to go through, and I'd accepted from the beginning that I was guilty. I wasn't going to deny that. Yeah. Um, uh, but they'd had a, they'd had a, uh, not a request, Sue do a unauthorized low level fly past at um, Napier uh, at a Wise Owl camp, which is those training camps for the cadets. Yep. And he'd taken out an NDB aerial and cat five the Sue. And he was court martialed about, five months before me so I thought to myself that I would no matter how dramatic I was it was more newsworthy and everything else in the end it was still an unauthorized low-level uh, fly with a cat five result of the aircraft so I thought if I get the same punishment as him I'll accept that and if I get more I'll appeal right. and true to form I got exactly what he got the same punishment okay. as him yep. yeah yeah so uh, that, all, that was all a process that was fair though and then did your career um, continue okay after that? Um, yeah, no, I, I, look, the Air Force was great. Yeah, uh, I love the Air Force. It was probably, it was obviously the best flying of my, of my life. And also the greatest memories I have of, of the aviation careers are all the Air Force. Um, but they were, I, I was lucky. I had a, I met a guy called, um, he's got a nigga Beatty. I can't think of his first name now. But I got to him. Uh, I got posted to Andover's after it was all over um, yeah. for my sins. And I got there and he called me into his office and I said to him, um, you know, have I got any chance uh, now or is my, you know, is my career virtually over? And he said, no, you've been um, charged, you've been punished. You come here with a clean slate and if you're good enough, uh, you'll progress uh, like everyone else. True to his word, I got my command 
on time, if not earlier. I ended up being a training captain on that squadron. And uh, yeah, I had a great career after that. I went back and flew red checkers for um, uh, one season back in oh, Woodrum. Right. Went back to my instructor's course, then did red checkers, and then ended up on the 727. Um, so uh, yeah, and no, I had a good career after that. And the Air Force was really, really good, you know. Um, they were fair people. Most guys were fair guys. They'd, 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 they'd tell you honestly if they thought what you did was wrong, which which it was, but they also were happy to, if you're willing to change your ways, they were willing to accept, you know. Yes, yeah. And actually, one point back then, um, particularly, is most of the guys that were at the top of the Air Force had all written off aircraft at some stage as well. If you look at the yeah, exactly. look at the history, so yeah, exactly. And even even when we were trying to find evidence to support me in the in the court martial, there were several incidents of of skyhawks coming back with with twigs and the landing lights and stuff. You know, yeah. that had just been sort of brushed under the carpet because yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, exactly. It was it was a bit like I think uh, at that time in life, it was if you stood up and said, "Hey, I'm guilty." You were forgiven quicker than if you um, tried to deny it. Right, right. Did, did you uh, get to keep any parts of the um, wreckage as souvenirs or anything like that? I've got the ejection handle, actually. Oh, right. Yeah, I got the handle. It's uh, sitting in my bathroom. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got the ejection handle. I found that. And uh, I did have a piece of the of the cockpit um, um, glass, but that got lost in, um, in one of the moves I had around the world unfortunately but I kept I've got the handle there which is the main part right yeah absolutely yeah that's the bit that saved you yeah and, and I've got a nice little Martin Baker watch as a sort of memorabilia as part gonna, of it as well so. I was, was going to ask about Martin Baker how, how they um because you become a member of a club then don't you after you've ejected uh you become two clubs actually you get the uh caterpillar club because oh, yes. of the shoot you use which you get this little tiny gold caterpillar, tiny, it's about maybe four or five millimetres long, and it's got a ruby eye, and you just sort of wear that surreptitiously on your jacket at, at functions, and people pick it up and recognise what it is. Yep. And then and the Martin Baker, you get a tie. But what happened was I was, um, I was uh, on an overnight in, in Malaysia, and uh, late at night I was watching one of those um, American uh, TV late shows, you know, one of those famous hosts they have. Yep. And he was talking about how he'd been to London and how he'd been to the Martin Baker factory. So I'm my sort of interest um, perks and I'm, and I'm wondering why he went there. And then he's talking about how if you have used a Martin Baker seat, you have an ejection number and there's a Martin Baker watch that you can buy that's specially designed that only you can have if you use the Martin Baker seats. So I'm still watching and thinking, I didn't know any of this. Yeah. And I'm now trying to Google it on the internet, but the, you know, Google and stuff wasn't as flashy as it is now. Yeah. And, uh, and all it was, was he was actually about to present a watch to his father who was in the audience because his father used the Martin Baker seat. So I'm oh, like, right. right, I want one of those. Absolutely. So I wrote to Martin Baker in London. And then as it turned out, I ended up, getting a flight in and going to visit the factory on the 30th anniversary of the, uh, of the accident. Wow. So that was really cool. So, I, I, and, and there were some guys in there had been, had been um, uh, working there for 50 years. 
So I got to meet these guys because likely they were the guys that made the seat that saved my life. And they um, they do a really cool thing. They they uh, I was really welcome you in. They look after you. It's great. But then they um, get you to sit down afterwards. And if you've got any photographs of your family and stuff, they video you with photographs of your family and you get a chance to say thanks to all the workers that uh, may have saved your life. And they play it occasionally to the staff as a sort of a, a, a um, you know, booster for them to what, or a reminder of how important their work is. Really, that, really cool. That's awesome. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, you, you think if you're a guy who packed this shoot or you're making the seat, you look up and you, you see a guy on video who's got a photograph of his wife and in my case five kids and they're thinking wow they're all alive because of of him yeah it's very yeah that's pretty motivating for them and then uh and then you can get the and they have when you walk into martin baker they got this amazing picture on the wall it's a picture of a of a um of a jet of a guy ejecting out of a out of a i can't remember the aircraft now anyways ejecting out of a fighter aircraft and the whole picture is made up of the names of all the people who have ejected and used the Martin Baker seat. Oh, wow. So it's, just a, it's a blue picture with white, the drawings in white, and all the white is the names of all the people who've ejected. So you can work out your number. Like my number is uh, 3,884. So you kind of do some basic mass counting along and down, and then you, you find your name on the wall there, and it's part of the picture. Yeah, it's very cool. That's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's neat. Now, I, got, I kept the picture on my phone at all times. Great. But uh, yeah, very clever. And uh, yeah, you can get your ejection number. And uh, they've got a little walk around factory, you see a bit of memorabilia. But uh, it was just nice to see them and, and say thanks. And, and uh, you know, of course, when, when it first happened, we went straight down to the armourers and the parachute packers and stuff. And we had a big booze up night for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and we, I got back to sort of say thanks to them but this is the chance now to say thanks to the actual manufacturers so that was great great experience yeah absolutely what's the atmosphere like on the squadron when you um, when you return from an, an ejection is, is everybody you know jubilant that you're still alive sort of thing oh yeah they're, yeah, they're, um, yeah, they're happy you're alive they're, Obviously, probably my boss was pissed off because I think I, I busted the uh, Strike Master's uh, perfect incident accident record uh, <laughs> yes. on the squadron, so he wasn't too happy with me. But uh, uh, but no, your, your buddies were all just thankful you're alive. So yeah, it's fine. And then and then the rest of the process was just time. I actually I was it, it was actually going to be the second to last flight. I was actually leaving like four days later. Oh, wow. So. So I didn't, I did the, didn't do the second to last, uh, the last flight, obviously, but I did that one. And then I was shipped off to Auckland uh, pretty much straight away. So, you know, I only saw contact with the guys when they came through Auckland or I went through a harker to say hi. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and this has been fascinating. Thank you very much, Pete. I've, um, as I said, long time ago, 30 years ago, when I did my training, I um, heard about your story and I've always sort of thought about it uh, as being, one of the closest um, goes that anyone ejecting must have had, surely. Um, to to, uh, but that's that split second. It's it's less than a second. So um, yeah, it was yeah. a tight time. Eh? Yeah, yeah, very very lucky. Um, no, but it's been fascinating to talk to you. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Dave. Pleasure. Yeah, it's been nice to reminisce. Actually, I sort of haven't thought about it for a long time, so it's nice to recall. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, what are you doing now? What, what, what 
Are you um, still flying? Uh, well, I, I, after the Air Force, I went and worked for Emirates uh, Airline living in Dubai for 25 years. Yep. Um, I resigned in the middle of last year in the COVID process. Didn't want to really stay involved in the business that way. And then now I'm uh, still living in Dubai, but I'm now working with a buddy of mine, uh, another Kiwi guy who's um, trying to arrange uh, action flights, uh, balloon rides, parachute jumping, and a bit of... Um, upset prevention and recovery training. So we're just right. sort of trying to work through the AOCs for that right now and get it up and running and, and uh, financing, et cetera. So it's uh, sort of something completely different now. Yeah. Going, going back to your roots, really, it's not. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to getting, they're going to have extra 330s as the uh, UPRT aircraft. And so, yeah, it should be fun. Something completely different, but a, a way that I'd like to end my career is sort of going back to the beginning, if you like. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Good luck with it. Yeah, it should be fun. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it turns out it should be fun, actually. It should be great. But the, the ballooning and the parachuting is set to take off on the 1st of or 2nd of December, which is the 50th anniversary for the UAE. So we're hoping to get it sorted by then, and the UPRT will, will start that in about another nine months afterwards. But, um, okay. yeah, it should be, should be a new challenge. Fun. Fun way to awesome. finish. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.